Before we begin, I want you to understand just how seriously I take my responsibility. The mere act of asking a question is the first step on the path to damnation. Heresy. The Imperium of Man was not built by those who questioned. It was built on the iron will of the Emperor, in the Orthodox, and above all, obedience. In our Imperium, we have a single institution that is pure enough to ask questions, and the Ordos of the Inquisition will now put you to the question. And welcome to 40 Curious, the podcast where each episode, with the help of an expert, we delve deep into a topic around Warhammer 40,000. And uh, today we have with us Trevor, who is in the Canadian Navy, um, and we're going to be talking about naval warfare in the 41st millennium and um, how that relates to modern warfare and how the analogy between surface fleets works in the void and doesn't work and how GW make it you know sort of shoehorn it in a little bit and find workarounds for the for the problems so hi Trevor how are you I'm good how are you yeah pretty good um I'm currently having to spend time in the house alone because of covid um so my family are elsewhere but um fortunately I'm not feeling too bad with it so I've taken advantage and I'm actually done a little bit of painting and that sort of thing so so it's kind of weirdly enjoyable right now but come back to me in a week and we'll check then um and what about yourself i'm doing good um i just recently moved to the west coast of canada to join a new ship so uh, that was a little bit of an adventure i'm i moved 3611 kilometers according to my financial claim because <laughs> i can claim a certain amount of mileage or whatever it is for driving oh, wow, my car okay so uh, I, my family home might be closer to you right now than uh, I'm, I'm t- given how wide North America is. Yes, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure I've seen those maps of Canada where they say they, they, they show the whole vast expanse of it, and then they show this tiny little area in the bottom right hand corner, and they say seventy five percent of the population lives in this area, um, and you're right out on the west coast, on the Pacific coast, right? Yeah, I'm in uh, Victoria, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. So you can't get much further west than where I'm living right now. Uh, okay. And um, so, yeah, do you want to kind of uh, give us a quick introduction, um, a few sentences on what what you want to talk about today? Well, um, there's sort of this thing, and it, the term was coined in the U.S. It's called uh, naval blindness. Um, and what it basically means is a lot of people, uh, I mean, UK may be accepted because it's an island nation and you have a grand naval history that you probably learned in primary school. Um, but uh, a lot of people don't understand sort of what navies do because they're sort of invisible and how they relate to the real world. And um, because of my profession, I really enjoy sort of looking at science fiction navies and how they sort of relate to modern day 
uh, navies as well. So I'm constantly reading science fiction novels or playing video games for that sort of uh, situation. So kind of wanted to explore, you know, like how does modern navies fit into the 40K uh, universe? What's the compare and contrast there? And sort of like you said in the intro, um, what lessons um, uh, can we sort of learn from that sort of comparison? So Great. Um, and how long have you been into 40K as a hobby? Oh, geez. I'm trying to remember. Uh, 1994, I think. Yes, 1994. And we couldn't actually get uh, Games Workshop stuff without actually mail ordering it in Canada. Well, so you'd have to mail order it from the UK or... Yeah, like I had a... I would get a game, a white dwarf that had a UK... Like a UK white dwarf. There was no North American reprint at the time. Um, when I was... I mean, it was a few years later, they sort of... Like GW stores or or maybe they had them in large cities in the US and I didn't know about it. But uh, that's when I started. We start, I started with Epic Space Marine. If you remember that. Sure, yeah. And um, got the Renegades book, and we were, I was playing as Eldar, of course, as one does. And all my friends were playing Chaos, as one does. And, uh, yeah, and that's, that was my first start. And then eventually we migrated into 40K, and then I picked up Warhammer Fantasy Battles, and that became my main thing for a while. And then, you know. But that's quite wild that, like, you, yeah. you couldn't get, you, you couldn't actually buy the stuff. There was no physical shop, but yet you still managed to to get into it and have a gaming group. I mean, how did that work? Um, it was so I had one friend who was in I, I guess uh, he went to Toronto, which is a big the big city where I was near where I was living. But it's in about an hour and a half away, and he went in and he went into one of their large gaming shops, and they had little pamphlets. At the time, Game Workshop had these little sort of fold out pamphlets, and you could pick up a pamphlet about a unit. So he brought back a bunch of pamphlets of various units and it was like, oh, it's like a striking scorpion on the front of the page and you flipped over the little pamphlet and it had like a little short story, a narrative story about striking scorpions ambushing someone. And then you're like, oh, that's really cool. And then you're, you know, uh, 17 year old me or 16 year old me is like, this is amazing because I was already into science fiction. And, and so away, you, you know, as we got, got through that. And then we were, you could get Epic because Epic was huge at that time. And so you could really get into Epic easily. There's a lot of plastic kits and it was relatively inexpensive yeah. for a teenager, you know, on their, your lawn mowing money. And, uh, and then as we got older and more into high school, you know, 40 K was the thing. Second edition 40 K, I believe. Yeah. After Rogue Trader. Yeah. So yeah. You could still go buy all that Rogue Trader stuff at garage sales. If someone had it or you could find it, if you're lucky, you go to a shop. And then, you know, we didn't really know how the rules work. So you're trying to mesh Rogue Trader rules in with your second edition 40K rules and nothing. It was ever balanced. And that's where, you know, the love of narrative campaigns from campaigns come from. Because it was like, you know what? We're just going to play a scenario because we'll never balance these armies. Yeah. 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 I mean, like there's rock, <laughs> paper, scissors kind of styles of battles where sometimes you run up against someone and you go, oh, I just don't have guns that can really hurt you. Um yeah. So, yeah so I'll, or I'll, I dropped a, a virus grenade and it killed your entire army in the first turn. I don't know if you remember that from second edition. But. I remember having um, rolling rolling up randomly <laughs> and having having jump pack guys who could drop grenades and they did some kind of horrific damage to uh, to a, like an orc yeah. army something. 
along those lines. Yeah, yeah. I had a I had my buddy had an orc army and my friend who was, you know, the win at all costs gamer of our group brought a virus grenade uh, special weapon card. Uh, let's see what this does. And basically there was like two models left in his army after the first turn. Just from the virus grenade card. And so we were immediately house ruled, no more virus grenades. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. You, you have a, a, a campaign hmm. where that's the that's the trophy at the end or something. Um exactly, and so have exactly. you actually been playing and, and, and painting and, and doing that all the time since ninety four, or have you had time out? Uh I think I took a, like a lot of people do, I took a time out when I was in university because I decided uh, it was more fun to go out to the pub and have a good time. Yep. Um, and so my money was more focused on, you know, early 20s sort of stuff. But uh, you get back into it when you get your real job and you have your adult money. And um, and then you sort of want that escape from the everyday where you can just sort of put on a podcast and, uh, you know, uh, put some miniatures together. Sure. And now my kids are getting into it. My daughter loves painting and stuff like that. So uh, she's, what's her, what, the, what are the things she's enjoying uh, model-wise and, and um, law-wise? So she has, well, I got her one of those, I can't remember what they're called. They're like the little kits that have, um, it's like a Age of Sigmar kind of kit where it's like a little war band. Oh. Um, like war, war Cry or something. Yeah, yeah. The um, oh, Those are stunning model sets. Yeah. So yeah. I got her, she's super into squigs. So I got her uh, the Night Goblin one or whatever it's called, Loot. Whatever. Gloom Spike Gits. Loot Gloom Spike Gits, yeah. yeah, whatever it is, yeah. So she's all into painting the mushrooms on them and painting them all to look like red caps with like white spots on their hats and ah, red. very cool. So she's super into that. And my son um, has got a Tau kill team. He started putting together. Now he's not much, but much, much with the painting, but he loves model kits. So he's into putting that together. Um, but uh, I did get him to play a game of uh, I don't think it's called War Masters. Battle Masters. I don't know if you remember that. I was actually out of the hobby during that, but I I gather it was a little bit like the fantasy equivalent of Epic. So no, that's that's Battle Masters. Not so that's War Masters, not Battle Masters. Oh, okay. Battle Master was you remember Hero Quest? Yes. A GW Battle Master was like a bunch of units on a hex map that you put on your kitchen floor. Or your living room floor, and then you had cards that would move your guys around. You roll dice, and it was like Hero Quest, but like army size. Okay. And I, f- I found one at a garage sale, and it was missing a couple, you know, beastmen or like lances were broken off or whatever. And uh, my son loved playing that one when he when he was younger because it's super easy, right? You just flip over cards and do with the card set, sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, that was a great because oh. I played that as well. That's sort of the precursor to fantasy, so. Sure. And you talked about sort of narrative narrative campaigns being your thing. You are you currently doing anything along those lines? Um I'm currently because I moved out west, I left my Eldar army in Ontario and I brought uh, my Death Corps of Krieg, which I have always wanted to build forever, but Forge World prices. Um so uh now I have a 3D printer so I can do bits and they have the new uh, Krieg kill team. So you just use those for your infantry and you can just mix and match bits. And of course, all the regular, you know, Imperial Guard stuff works with them. And now with the rumors, you know, saying that Krieg might be in the new codex, you know, fingers crossed. Oh, right. So I think I might have come into it at the, 
at the right time. So I have uh, currently sitting at my desk, I can see from here is a Mark V uh, land ship that I converted and 3D printed from bits to match my Krieg army because everything's going to be World War One style. Yes. If you're going to do Krieg, you might as well go all the way in, right? So. <laughs> and you've got your, I mean, so so you were building this all in quite a quick period of time, aren't you? Because you, you left and you, you, you had yeah, a couple I've of units. Yeah, I've only been here you're... a month. Yeah, I've, I've left, I've been here a month. I have two units, two infantry units painted. I have, um, I'm in the middle of uh, my weeks-long conversion for this tank. Um, so, um, yeah, I've, it's only been like a month and I have, you know, almost a patrol. Almost a patrol. I need another. I have some HQs I need to paint, but other than that. Fantastic. So. Okay. And did you play um, much Battlefleet Gothic or anything like that? I did. It wasn't huge where I was at the time because Battlefleet Gothic was during when I was in my university phase. Yeah. So I didn't, I did own the game. I had to. I mean, it's spaceships and it's naval combat in space. This is like my jam. So. Uh, I got it, and I've played a, f a few games. I played in one tournament, um, so it was really I, pl I played an Imperial fleet, even though I'm an Eldar guy at heart. Um, but the Eldar just didn't play the way I kind of wanted to, you know. So I wanted those broadsides and torpedo runs, you know. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, <laughs> and have you played other space combat tabletop games as well? Yes, um, my current favorite is Drop Fleet Commander, um, which is a really interesting game. It's, a, I think it's TT Combat, out of the UK, owns them now. Um, I believe that's, um, isn't that Andy Chambers? Is Andy Chambers designed the, helped design the game. I don't know if he owns the company. Okay, yeah. This is a, So it's an interesting uh, analogy, because Andy Chambers designed Battlefleet Gothic, and then he was hired by, at the time, it was like Falcon Games or whatever, who originally owned um, Drop Fleet Commander. They hired him to help make Drop Fleet Commander. So he came at it from an entirely different angle. He came at it from making a modern military-style space combat game versus sort of what we're going to talk about, I think, later is the parallels of Battlefleet Gothic with sort of Age of Sail or Jutland era Yeah. instead. So it's a very different kind of game, and but it's I, I love it. Yeah. So another thing that leads us quite neatly onto the topic is how, you know, we're talking naval warfare in forty k, and and it is, you know, in, in sci fi, it's always called the navy because that's the analogy we work with, and so, you know, classic um, space sci space sci fi like. Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica are very much, very much based on sort of fleets of the Second World War. I mean, Battlestar Galactica especially is is basically carrier combat, um, where you have a, a, a carrier battle group essentially defending itself against the harrying waves of, of attackers, and that's not what we have with forty k combat. Uh, no, combat, we don't. Which is very much capital ship based, and you know when you read about the um, ab about the space combat fighters and and anything smaller than a corvette is is basically insignificant. Um, you know, hundreds of fighters are wiped out in a single explosion, and no one you know no one cares. Obviously, the survival rates of, of pilots in in 
in Battlefleet Gothic is going to be even lower than it was in like World War One. But the analogy of the Navy is essentially that you have you are operating in a hostile environment in its closed in a closed area you are in a ship and then you are going out into this into this area where presumably if the ship sinks you have a big problem and you're not going to survive very long and there's other ships nearby and it's mm-hmm. the same you're talking about trade lanes and things like that um so there's a lot of crossover but void warfare is actually incredibly different if you look at like harder sci-fi which goes into it and you talked about drop zone commander um and you know there's various other other ones like you've got sort of the EM banks kind of ones where you're you're talking about warfare con- conducted on on an, on a space where stars are are casualties of of space combat um and you've got so you've got this interesting scaling issue that really warhammer 40k is always about your dudes and your heroes and they want to keep it at a level whereby your flagship has a meaning and has a heft and a weight while actually you know kind of dissipated drone combat or something might be more realistic but that's not that's just not the way of war in the way that 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 games workshop are presenting it um so what um where do you want to lead into it do you want to talk a little bit about how navies operate and, and, and and what they're actually for yeah absolutely um so you know you can go with the basic definition like what is a navy and you have sort of the dictionary like it's a collection of people, warships, facilities that fight wars and in a maritime environment, you know. Um, but really, like, what a Navy is, is a Navy is um, taking advantage of um, what we call buoyancy, right? So the reason trade is cheaper on the ocean is because buoyancy provides uh, free sort of freedom from gravity, I guess is what you can sort of say, right? And so it's much cheaper to move things on the water than it is to move things any other method that we know of. It's like, uh, I think I read one time, it was like, it's like 12 times cheaper to move goods by water than it is to move goods by land. And so this is where, you know, we start getting, so then there's trade, right? And you start moving things by water, whether it's canals or rivers, and then eventually oceans and seas. And of course, where you have trade, then you have people who want to control that trade and you have to protect your, your trade from being controlled. And so that's one of the purposes of the Navy It's to sort of keep this, your trade that is supporting your faction, nation, planet, international, uh, intergalactic empire, um, you know, uh, the greases the wheels of trade and and facilitates allowing you know the movement of stuff around because you're protecting your trade. But the other thing is is what navies do is they project power ashore, or in the case of space combat, power between systems. So the space marines, you know, is the perfect the classic poster boys of 40k universe can't get to where they're going unless there's a navy that is able to defeat an enemy fleet and clear the skies so the space marines can land their drop pods on the planet and do what they need to do, right? Yeah. And so that's what the Navy's for. So 
40k at being the hero focused well you know and this is why we talk about i was talking about naval blindness right even in the 40k universe no one really thinks very much about the void combat that happens which is significantly more important perhaps you know than um the actual space marine you know dropping their drop pod down to put down the the uh the revolution or whatever they're trying to deal with right yeah I mean, if we if we actually kind of step back and look at it, is that the fighting, the fighting on the on the ground is effectively a cleanup operation because in an in a in an environment where exterminatus is a thing, um, you know the the Horus Heresy, the the the, the um, rebel legions dig in on Istvan Five. Now. You've got Horus and Mortarian at least. Uh, I don't. I can't remember if all the other Primarchs are there, but of the traitor legions who dig in, at least three or four of the Primarchs, plus the vast majority of the legion strength, is dug in on mm-hmm. Isvan Five. Now, if the Imperial fleet arrives and then just nukes it from orbit and literally cracks it from, to the bed- bedrock and virus bombs it, I mean, it's not a very entertaining story. But that's reality. Is that the naval the the naval area of combat above a planet is both air superiority and naval superiority and we yes. know from modern warfare that if you don't have those things then you're going nowhere and you might be able to sort of conduct some kind of insurgency and if the planet itself is too valuable to or they don't want to um to to actually destroy it then yeah fine but 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 essentially it's like really in the 41st millennium, the, the Imperial Navy is kind of the primary fighting force. It is. It's the glue that makes the Imperium work. Yeah. And so that's the thing is, so if you sort of make the analogy uh, uh, um, to Earth and modern, you know, current navies today or in historically, um, all the different planets are basically like cities. Because, you know, the Imperium doesn't just have, like, a planet that can do everything. You know, no, no, no. This city, this planet is entirely for worshipping the Emperor. They, we don't do anything but worship the Emperor <laughs> on this one planet. Yes. Right? Yep. Like, no, sorry. No, we don't feed ourselves. We don't uh, make, we don't send troops to the Imperial Guard regiments. You know, we just worship the Emperor here. You know, like, so, which is a completely a great science fiction trope, but would probably never happen, right? Because even... Even countries may have specialties in exports, but they don't, you know, just go, well, we're not growing any vegetables at all, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you have, you know, you have your, you know, uh, planets like Armageddon, which, you know, build stuff, you know, your forge worlds, your hive worlds that build things for the Imperium. You have your uh, planets that send resources to the forge worlds to build stuff and food to the hive cities to feed them. But you can't, like Armageddon, you can't grow anything. It's just a toxic wasteland, for example, or orcs are rampaging across it in Armageddon, classic Armageddon history. Um, so what do you need then? Well, you need to send that stuff through space on merchant ships to deliver all this stuff. Well, then you've got orc pirates, you've got chaos invading, and you've got Tyranids that are hungry, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you protect it? Well, you need a navy. So the Imperial Navy is the glue that makes the Imperium exist because without the Imperial Navy, you wouldn't have an Imperium. You just have a bunch of separate planets at uh, just sitting waiting to be predated upon by other interstellar powers. 
Sure. Right. And I mean that, and that um, specialization also strikes me as yes, it's a sci-fi concept, but within the internal structure of the Imperium, that also works as a um, as a as a method of control. In that yes. the entire organization, you know, is explicitly to avoid giving any one group too much power. I mean, for the vast majority of the Imperium's life, lifetime, the biggest threat to the Imperium has been itself. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Horus Heresy has dominated the the strategic thinking of the Imperium ever since. They talked about uh, at, it, it, this is older law was that that it was the the point where the imperial army and the imperial navy were separated and deliberately or semi-deliberately given their own factional identity so that they would find it incredibly difficult to cooperate because if you give the navy a real ground force then they could become the you know the the, the faction within the sub-faction within the imperium that could control everything and similarly a planetary governor of a um, of a system or, or which is you know kind of specializes in in um you know, sort of industrial stuff that in some senses you can think could be a powerful thing but if they don't supply their own food then if the if the planetary governor gets ideas above their station then the imperial imperium can just go and uh, blockade and you're going to starve to death and what you're going to do about it and we have control of the sky and we can send uh, 10 drop pods of a company of marines into your palace and there's you have no troops which can realistically even slow them down so so you know don't do it um and so that kind of it although it's 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 a sort of it's a conceit and it's a, you know it's a bit like the sci-fi uh, the star wars thing where you know you have the ice planet and the desert planet and, and things like that it's a good it's a good hook to hang your sci-fi story on but it also over the years in in 40k has been given this um sort of this this reason as well which i quite like as a as a function i always wondered if that was intentional or a natural outgrowth of their world building i suspect that's an emergent property um yeah, sometimes you world build in science fiction and you're like, oh, I have a completely legitimate lore reason why that is the case, but I didn't think of that when I first started making the cool ice planet or the, yeah. you know, the, the planet that just worships the emperor. Yeah, to go back to the um, the first episode, um, Dave was talking about the um, Sherlock Holmes stories and you have the the Watsonian um, yes. reasons, so the in-universe yes. ones and the Doyleist reasons, so it's the creator of the author. Um, and I definitely think that that this is likely it's it's a post rationalization of something which was just in the law, but they've made it work. Also, I do think that there is in the creative process. There's sometimes you don't know why something works, but it mm-hmm. just works. You go that that fits, it works, and it takes somebody else to tell you that's why it works. And so there's there's elements of of that as well, probably in over the course of. Was it thirty-five years? They've just had the 30, 35 year anniversary of 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 forty um, k, which is kind of scary um, because <laughs> I was there very close to the beginning. I think I got the Rogue Trader book in about like nineteen ninety one or something like that. So it's yeah, that's thirty thirty two uh, 
31 years. Um, but anyway, so the other function of um, a navy in this case, especially in the Imperium, is, is as an yeah, instrument of internal absolutely. oppression and internal control over a very, very far-flung and diverse empire. Um, I, I was listening to a linguistics a history of the English language, and they, they said there's a, a rule of thumb that over the course of a thousand years, all languages essentially become incomprehensible to the person at the other end. Um, so, you know, English uh, is is now, when you compare it to Middle English, is you, know, you basically can't understand it. Um, and the same from that yeah. to Anglo-Saxon. I tried reading original Beowulf and it makes oh, no God, sense. Oh, God, I had to study that in the original Anglo-Saxon mm. at university. <laughs> I, I was like, no, I, yeah, I'm out. It sounds really <laughs> I pretty. <laughs> I, I really like the sound of it, but God, I couldn't get my head around it. Um, but anyway, so, so you know, the, the empire, the Imperium is likely to, it, with all these different um, different planets, most of them would be unable to talk to each each other and and certainly culturally they would have nothing in common with each other and so the imperium's instruments of levers of control and coercion are, are incredibly important and, and that's another function of the imperial navy and, and so that's i mean we it's it's called the imperium right like it's the imperium mm -hmm. of man right like uh which implies empire yeah you know so uh, and empires are made up of multiple smaller kingdoms in the traditional definition, mm. right? So all these little planets or planetary groupings are their kingdoms and they need to be kept in line by the big, the military force from the high, seat, high seats in Terra and the High Lords in Terra, I should say, which as you pointed out, the High Lords have, they're separated, the Imperial Guard from the Imperial Navy, separate High Lords, yeah, if yeah. I remember correctly. So that, you know, they'd have to come to some sort of agreement in order to have control. Um, and so, yeah, so it's very interesting when you say it that way. You know, we're traditionally, we sort of on, on planet Earth think about, uh, you know, terrestrial bound, that uh, methods of control are usually done by armies. But if you sort of take the analogy, like I was saying, like each one of these planets is a city. The Imperial, in the, in the case of the, Imper the Imperium or the Imperial Navy, uh, you know, the Navy sort of acting like that Imperial the police force, the guys who could show up at any moment and, you know, like take everything that you built away from you. If you don't, you know, send the ties to the, uh, the golden throne. Right. And so, um, you know, there's, I mean, in our own history, I guess the, the, uh, the Victorian British empire is maybe the closest analogy of that, right. Where the Royal Navy uh, controlled, the ocean's completely unattest, uh, uncontested for the most part, except for some, you know, local areas. And he um, became wealthy on, you know, the resources that they were able to harvest from around the world. Yeah, and I mean, gunboat diplomacy was a was, exactly. a, was a thing. And, you know, so there's, there's, there's multiple, multiple examples of, you know, sort of African yes. kingdoms, um, you know, have quite, you know, quite reasonably going, stop taking our stuff. Um, and yeah. just just stop it. It's really we don't like it at all. And rebelling, and the, you know, kind of perhaps having a, a local rebellion which resulted in the governor and 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 a few, you know, the garrison suffering, uh, the consequences. And then uh, when the when the empire 
heard about it, then a couple of months later there would be a um, you know, a Royal Navy um, ship would pull up into port and just start bombarding the palace, and then they'd go, "What are you mm-hmm. going to do about it?" And you know, and, and, then, and then you know, sort of impose a peace. Um, and as again going back to the first episode, if we think about the Imperium as medieval Europe, Christendom, it's, it's a loose conglomeration of special interest groups and kingdoms, uh, knightly orders, rather than a, a cohesive thing. And, and in that case, the as I say, the, the, the navy is is pretty much the glue which which stops it coming apart um, for in both protecting and oppressing. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite example of gunboat diplomacy was um, the U.S. opening Japan to trade. They just sailed in with modern warships, did a demonstratory broadside in like Tokyo Harbor, and toppled the shogunate like almost overnight. Yeah, yeah. Because Japan was suddenly like, oh, we can't be isolationist anymore because these guys are just going to bombard us. So we need to open up to the world. And then, of course, that led to. A different sort of naval empire uh, when you get all the way into World War Two, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and that's a, that's that's many other podcasts about that, which uh, delve into it. And, yeah, I know, I know, but it's it is naval. Yeah, related, no, absolutely. So, you know, um, and so you were um, talking about what is a navy for and and the roles of it, um, and so we covered that pretty well. But you you specifically mentioned in our in our um, conversations before the difference between a naval power and a maritime power. Um, so do you want to yes. do you want to go into that? So a maritime power, like we were talking about, is using buoyancy to get cheap trade. That's what a maritime power essentially right. is. And so when you think of, I'm trying to think of a good historical example, maybe Portugal. When Portugal was like a really large maritime mm-hmm. power, um, uh, they were they we didn't have a very large navy, but they had like a crazy merchant fleet right right? and so they were all over the place doing everything and were making a ton of money um because at the time um if i remember correctly my history correctly uh you know it was hard to do navy uh, naval warfare far from home right like the technology was sort of getting there like this is pre-spanish armada kind of stuff right and as we know, like the Spanish Armada couldn't handle like a small, like what would be today considered a, small, a minor hurricane um, in, in the English Channel, yeah. you know, sort of thing. So, um, so, the, so Portugal would be an example of like a maritime power, I guess. You could say. Okay, so sort of and, um, generating money and and uh, resources and mm-hmm. stuff, and, and presumably those ships would have been armed, but but they weren't Absolutely. a kind of a, a a navy as such. Okay. Exactly. And so a naval power is simply put, you put weapons on those ships and that's a naval power. Right. So you can be both a maritime power and a naval power. British Empire, perfect example of Victorian British Empire, right? Where all of trade at some point floated on a British ship and then you had the military hardware to back up and defend that trade. Yes. Um, you know, um, I guess modern example would be like flags of convenience where like some random country, you know, has like a whole bunch of maritime ships registered there because it's cheaper taxation. Sure. Whereas, you know, the U.S. is a naval power or the U.K. is a naval power. Right. Right. But some like minor country 
in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with good taxation, has a huge bunch of maritime, registered maritime fleet. They're a maritime power, maybe. But the naval powers are the ones who, have, who you know, carry the guns. Okay. And, um, and so what era of... Is, is, is 40K most reminiscent of for you? Um, we've talked a little bit about the British Empire and its kind of its way of, of, of going. And that certainly seems to be part of the the model of empire. But in terms of actual, like, the ships and the combat and the way they fight. So in my opinion, it's um, World War One pre, pre-aircraft carrier style. Right. Um, combat. And uh, I've got a couple of reasons for this. Um, first reason is that um, broadsides and torpedoes coexisted together at that time frame. You had torpedo boats that would do runs and launch torpedoes at large fleets that could do a lot of damage, but they couldn't take any damage in return. So you're thinking like Cobra-type destroyers from Battlefleet Gothic as an example of that. Um, and then, of course, the ships literally line up and a line astern and shoot at each other until someone just runs out of ships or ammunition, right? You just beat the snot out of each yeah. other. And um, and that's, you know, that's sort of a little re- re- reminiscent of Age of Sail, but Age of Sail requires, you know, there's no powered, powered movement. It's all about where the wind is coming from. And so, you know, Battlefleet Gothic, you know, you've, you've got your own engines, you're powered, you're heavily armored, you've got all these guns, you have some really big guns, you've got torpedoes, and then there is some aircraft in there or flying around. They can do bombing runs or whatever, but for the most part, not the decisive it's the broadsides all. and the metal. Yeah, it's the big weight of metal and the big weight of broadsides, yeah. you know, just I, I mean, to go slugging it yeah, out. To, and to go the, the artwork of the, of the insides of the ships where you have literally thousands of people hauling uh shells the size of trains into macro cannon and stuff so yes. it's, it's turning that kind of the, the mechanism within a a, a a dreadnought's gun into that sort of high gothic absurdity of, of 40k yeah. oh yeah absolutely um and so the other reason i think is because there's no aircraft i mean unless you may be playing eldar or some other faction aircraft become important mm-hmm. um but um you know, the classic, you know, chaos versus Imperial Battlefleet Gothic uh, fight is Jutland in space. It's absolutely the German high fleets versus the British home fleets in the North Sea. That's what that is in my mind. Uh, the third reason was Andy, Andy Chambers actually literally said, when I designed it, I was thinking about Jutland the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that sounds pretty conclusive. I saw yeah. that in an interview as well. And I was like, oh, is it like a white dwarf or something? And I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense now. Okay, and for people so. who might not be familiar, <laughs> what is Jutland? Oh, Jutland was the largest naval battle, I guess, in the uh, First World War, when Germany was sort of getting towards the end of the war, where Germany realized that they needed to break the British blockade in order to get those that food we were talking about. Yeah. So Britain had, had imposed a blockade on Germany. Absolutely. So like the rubber, food, um, like Germany was starting to starve because they couldn't get food in from outside. And they were, you know, undergoing a lot of, uh, of uh, stresses on the home front. And so the German high fleet was told, break out. You need to break out. You need to break the British uh, blockade. And that led to a big battle in uh, the North Sea. 
between the British home fleet and um, the German high fleet. Yeah. And so in terms of technology, the age of sail, you talked about they were largely wooden ships with the broadsides and the cannons. And by World War One, they transitioned to the dreadnoughts, which were the metal, mm-hmm. uh, the first fully metal ships. And they had the rotating gun turrets. They had, um, they did have um, sort of a quite highly mechanised elements to them, but they were still relying on, um, on, on lookouts in their masts to to target their gunnery. So it wasn't like the the naval thing. But when you think of a battleship, probably that's the era we sort of think of as the as as the sort of the the gold the golden age of battleships. Um, with you know you have big met, huge metal gun turrets which fire shells the size of minis or something like that isn't it yeah um the other interesting thing for battlefleet gothic that ties it into the world war one mentality is the ship classification system so a lot of people think ships are classified on their tonnage like how much does a ship weigh like a destroyer should be more than a frigate and a cruiser should make way more than a destroyer and a battle cruiser should make way more than a cruiser right but ships are not classified uh, on how much they weigh ships are classified on what they do so like an aircraft carrier has the same tonnage as a battleship but they do two completely different jobs or more maybe you could argue an aircraft carrier does a battleship's job better but it's a different kind of ship and it does a different job so you would name it differently so battlefleet gothic has destroyers they have cruisers they have battle cruisers, they have, um, and battleships are dreadnoughts, right? And that's the classic um, World War One definition, because by the time you get to the pre, pre-war, uh, interwar period, and then into World War Two, dreadnoughts disappeared, and they became fast battleships. And they upgraded all the battle cruisers to fast battleships, like the hood was a battle cruiser, and then redefined as a battleship after she did a refit. Okay. So what are so, what, what is what is the role of a battle cruiser then? Cuz so a battle cruiser was supposed to be able to outgun anything it, it couldn't it could catch and outrun anything that could catch it. So like that could kill it, I should say. So like it was supposed to be faster than a battleship, so a dreadnought. So a dreadnought couldn't catch it, so it could run away. Right. And it had to be but it could overgun any cruiser it found. So battle cruisers were the um, were um, the same guy who invented the dreadnought was the same guy who did, invented battle cruisers because they're cheaper to build than battleships because they didn't have the same amount of armor but they had the same kind of guns so they could go really fast but by the time technology improved for the Second World War you could get that same sort of speed with this with the battleship armor armor and armament out of, on out of a battleship right okay technology advance but that's the difference between that's what a battle cruiser is supposed to be it's supposed to be a lightly armored heavy hitting uh large ship okay so it's it's almost like a sort of a cavalry concept rather than a yeah um, it's it, kind of a cavalry concept so you yeah. just think of it in kind of terms of of land warfare um yeah, so the, the the battleships are the heavily armored cataphractite cavalry who advance in a block mm-hmm. and do that and the battle cruiser would be the sort of the 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 cavalry which sort of goes around the flanks and um kind of can raid the rear areas or, 
or something like that. Yeah, so cruisers are called cruisers because they're supposed to be able to have really long endurance and go and interfere with enemies' merchant f- fleets. Right. So uh, best examples would be the Second World War, actually, like Scharnhorst, for example, was a was a cruiser that's supposed to go sail, you know, all around the place and start sinking British shipping in the case of a war. Yeah. They were what submarines, they were the original idea that submarines eventually took over. Yeah. Right? To raid shipping. Um, and that actually is in, you know, we're, when we talk about naval theory, that's actually one of the reasons why um, they changed some of the naval theory from the original as it developed. Because cruisers could sail around and attack merchant shipping and then get away before someone could catch them. Well, battle cruisers were designed to find those guys and stop them. Oh, okay. Because they could, they could catch them and overgun them. Right? Yeah. And that's where battle cruisers came from. So battle cruisers' role was to kill the cruisers. Oh, okay. Right? Sure. And um, and then also protect the flanks of the fleet because they could do lots of really great gunnery. But if they could get around the sides, supposedly, of a, you know, a battleship, they could outmaneuver it or run away if they needed to. Yep. Um, that's not the way they ended up being used, but that's what they were designed for. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so um, getting it back into 40K. So it's, in, it's, it's largely the, 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 certainly the Imperial and Chaos tech is, is, is Battle of Jutland then. Mm. But then we come into the issue where Void combat and is, is is actually very very different from naval combat in some ways. And um, I actually got a li- did a little bit of maths, so some exciting maths coming up um, here because um, this was uh, I got Matt from the um, statistics podcast to help me with this because it made my brain explode. When you're thinking about defending an area, if you are defending a line. So as in, say, um, say the, the, the British Channel, I did a rough measurement of the British Channel and for basically hundreds of years, the Royal Navy's job was to stop an invasion force. Yes, it was doing other stuff, but the one thing which, basic, which it, it had to do more than anything else was stop, stop somebody putting their troops on ships and coming over the Channel and invading. And in order to do that, if you measure kind of along the south coast of Britain and then kind of up the east coast a little bit, you've probably got an area of about a thousand kilometres to, to to defend, essentially. And so I worked on, on that basis and then said, OK, and from there, on average, you want about a 50 kilometre de- domination area. Like you need to be able to, to, to sort of stop a meaningful naval force coming into there and sustaining it for... Uh, for that and so that's a fairly easy piece of mass and that's 50,000 square kilometers now that's already a staggeringly big area now I don't know how your mental arithmetic is but if you then make that a cubic area so that you also have to Mm -hmm. extend 50 kilometers into the into the air above how big an area do you think we're talking um it's like 250 kilometers cubed right it's 2.5 million kilometers cubed. Uh, I had to go back and do that math three times. Did you say 50? I, I said 50 kilometers, so I maybe. 
It's, it's, I'm orders of magnitude off, obviously. Yeah, yeah, okay. um, and so now the whole world knows that this engineer can't do math. You don't um, have to, though. Anyway, you have yeah. machines to do that. You just need to you just need to understand the formulas. That's fine. Um, but so that's gives that should give everyone an, an idea of just how large a yeah. volume we're talking about, and that's a tiny area of the globe. Now, if you were defending the Earth, what would it be reasonable to say, okay, let's defend out to the moon? Is that, would that say, try, we try and prevent any forces coming in inside the orbit sure. of the moon? I mean, that's a very, very small area of space. And it's not, it doesn't even sort of go out anywhere near the, the rest of the solar system. Now, if the Earth is the size of a tennis ball, in that scenario, and you held out the tennis ball in one arm and then stretched your arm out to the other, that would be roughly slightly under two metres. That's the area of space. That's the, the, the radius of space you'd have to defend. So you can just imagine from have a tennis ball and then walk two metres away from it, and you have to defend two metres in every direction. But the space is vast. And it's almost impossible to comprehend that you could actually blockade a planet on that place mm -hmm. so preventing somebody a ship coming into a in, into a, um, a, a the area of a planet and, and touching down is almost impossible to to do but obviously 40k and gw doesn't want to deal with the, the, those practicalities so what are the ways which they've used to make it more like naval combat in in um in the early sort of 1900s what what are the ways which they the devices which they've used to narratively make us be able to sort of comprehend it in the same way so so first thing they've used the classic um science fiction trope where science fiction writers don't understand scale yep so for example, like just think of a hive world and there's like billions and billions and billions of people living in this hive world under this crazy press. And they explain how tall, you know, the hive city is. It goes kilometers into the sky, almost into space. Um, they've sort of taken the trope and they've pushed it all the way to the extreme edges to make the grim dark, right? And so, um, but it's a classic thing where science fiction, science fantasy writers don't understand scale. Like uh, George R. R. Martin famously said when he saw the CGI of the, of the wall, you know, in the north, um, right? He was like, "Wait, it's not that big," and they're like, "That's what you wrote," <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't think it was that tall, right?" Like he had no concept sure. of what he was writing, right? Um, but the other way they do it, at least in the game thing, is they sort of have an arbitrary. This model represents a general vicinity of where the ship is for game purposes. And the ships will can you the bases can go right past each other. The ships will never collide because space is so vast that um, you're never going to be able to run into someone unless you absolutely are trying to, right? So if you're just unless you're doing a, whatever the special rules are for ramming, you know you can't you can just move right past through other models. It's not a big deal because space is so vast. Um, and then they've also sort of done the thing what they like they did with 40k the tabletop game where they sort of just fiddled around with ranges and said, this makes fun for game purposes and we don't really worry about the actual science behind it, right? Because like, is a bolter really gonna shoot 
12, like the equivalent of 12 inches. Like what's that? Like, like 40 meters, you know, in real life, you know what I mean? Like, um, I have in the military, like our basic rifle is like engagement range are 500 meters, you know, like, you know, like you're, you're doing like half a kilometer engagements down to their 40 meters. Right. So, so that's, that's sort of the way they do it. They just sort of game design away some of the problems, um, in order to make it fun, entertaining, and feel like you should imagine Jutland should feel like. Yes. Right? So, you know, whereas they're doing duels at 25 kilometers it's, away from each oh, other. That's over the horizon, isn't it? Um, yeah, actually, I think the longest ranged, weird random trivia, Navy trivia, the longest range um, strike of one ship's gun hitting another ship was actually World War II by the war spite against the Italians, and it was like 26 kilometers or something. Like just over the horizon. Right. So someone in the lookout was like, I can see their smokestack or some antennas. They t- did some great math and then they managed to land a shell on the Italians from really, really far away. Or, you know, maybe more luck. Um, in 40K, they sort of just sort of go like, yeah, we can't see you. We know we can't see you. Um, we're just shooting at sensor pictures and we're just shooting massive broadsides and then as you get closer with the broadsides, they do more damage, et cetera, et cetera, because we're going to hit more often. Sure. So that's sort of the way the game designer sort of took it, because they were sort of going for feel, and I don't think they actually did the math. Because I certainly don't think about the math when I play these games. No, well, I mean, it's not that type of game. Yeah. <laughs> there, are, there are games which deal with logistics there are. and uh, with crossfire and with like military tactics and, and 40K and all its, like, the associated games games of orbits are not those games at all they are much more about as you say the heroic feel um yeah and the other way that um people perceive distance is time right how long does it take us to go for a month like when someone asks for directions and they say how far away is it and you say oh it's 30 minutes away if you go by this road sure like people will give distance in time because what you're really asking is how long will it take me to get to this place yeah right um and so the same thing. So uh, like what's a turn in Battlefleet Gothic? Like how long is a turn? Right? Like is that like an hour? Is it 10 minutes? Is it, a, you know, seven hours? Right? Like how long does it take one, a ship to go from the planetary orbit to out by the moon in, in 40K? Well, as long as it takes for the story to be cool. Right? Like... And um, a lot of harder science fiction, uh, a really great example would be The Expanse, if anyone's seen that TV series, where it's like multiple days of engagements. And the engagements are also super sharp sharp and fast as ships go past each other, right? Like you have an engagement and then you're like accelerating away. Well, and that's not you know, very exciting in like in game, game terms. No, because you've spent three weeks trying to get into position to take uh, 30 seconds of shooting at someone and then your, you know, Earth's gravity pulls you away and you guys are out of engagement. So that's another thing in 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 um, in this game is whereas the maneuvering of the ships uh, to get into engagement range of their weapons and their arcs and stuff um, is sort of more like surface navy would be than space, obviously, right? There's the 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 magic of the imp, no 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 g forces and stuff like that, right? I mean, heck, they move between systems literally by magic through the warp. Yeah, <laughs> that was the thing which I was going to sort of come back to is that they another device that GW have used is is 
warp emergent zones is is there are mm. the stable routes which are the equivalent of island chains they give you some kind of um some kind of topography of the battlefield while actual void warfare you are on a ball you know you there's two fleets moving incredibly fast which have essentially no no terrain to deal with yes. um while you know it's a battlefleet gothic and and the, the novels and so on you talk about stable warp emergent zones and things like that so the, those are the equivalent of capes or um, you know channels and things like that and it gives you some kind of texture to work with narratively and in the game um so it kind of it and it gives you a way of bringing the scale back down to a to a heroic level where an individual ship handled right can do that well you know the, the maths of void warfare I, are i suspect pretty pretty stark and and pretty depressing um yeah yeah there's some interesting websites where some you know some crazy science fiction nerds and physicists are do uh real life space warfare discussions mm. what would a spaceship actually look like you know because like why are they always aerodynamically designed that doesn't make any sense it's space you can make a box yeah right like what's the most efficient shape for a warship it's probably not a ship shaped thing right like engines on one end why don't you have engines on all on four sides or five sides or whatever right you can go in any direction you want yeah and your bridge like, would always so, be in the middle of the ship most protected rather yeah. than looking out because why would you uh, have windows um the expanse has a really good example of that um they have all, all the combat zones are just boxes connected by um connected by like little pathways mm -hmm. and then when space combat ha happens they shut all the they shut all of the little walkways off and get rid of all the air. And then these boxes are the only place that has air. So if you take a battle damage that goes right through your ship, it's just going through the ship. It's not, you know, sucking all the air out like an airplane in high uh, altitude. Okay. So, like, that's hard science fiction, right? Whereas the science fiction that we love from 40K is, like, the people getting sucked out into space. That's the grimdark. It's supposed to happen that way, right? Like Yeah, you want your gun crew who they, they, they are born to to uh, serve this gun turret and the entire ecosystem yes. and there's an entire city essentially devolve they around. may have been born on the ship and have never seen anything but that gun deck in their entire life exactly and, and yeah we want that's yeah. so cool <laughs> <laughs> horrible but cool yeah that's the original you know that's where the sons of a gun has taken a uh, even further you know into the into the absurd <laughs> <laughs> so that's the um Na the naval kind of equivalent of um of the imperium and chaos but obviously those aren't the only uh fleets which we're dealing with no. in 40k and you mentioned in battlefleet gothic how it sort of was reminiscent of the age of sail in some ways but not in other ways and um actually in battlefleet gothic the eldar fleet the craft world fleet um actually does have rule they 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 have solar sails and there are mm -hmm. supplementary rules there so um do you do you want to sort of go into some of the ways the other navies uh, operate and, and the roles they fulfill yeah so so there's two if i remember correctly there's craft world fleet and then there's corsairs i think craft world were like a like a released in a white dwarf or something i can't remember 
But um, they both use the sole concept of solar sails, where they move faster if the if they're moving away from the sun than they do if they're moving towards the sun. So the sun represents where the wind is coming from. Yeah. Um, and so that sort of feeds into the Eldar fleet, con you know, the classic Eldar trope where we don't use like horrible plasma polluting engines and, and we're, and, you, know, you know, hippie space elves sort of concept. And, um, um, and so the, you know, they'll move faster that way. So it changes the dynamic of how they maneuver, right? So they can do those hit and run attacks. Uh, the other thing that's interesting with Eldar is uh, at least the Eldar Corsair fleet for a long time um, was a very dominant uh, carrier fleet. So they used aircraft because their bombers were very good in the game, which lent itself to a different play style, which is more reminiscent of the Second World War, where you would get in range with your carrier your aircraft, you'd send out waves of attack craft, they would blow up the enemy ship and then come back where your fleet was still safe. So you would set up your fleet to protect your aircraft carriers, your craft world, you know, um, aircraft carriers, essentially equivalent, and defend against the Jutland style battering ram that was trying to get into your formation because the elder ships were so fragile, right? Sure. It was a very different play style. Mm. And for a while, I remember in the tournament scene for Battlefleet Gothic, like, Elder were just destroying everybody with this play style because there was no real counter. Well, it's one of those things where, um, to go back to one of my favourite sci-fi authors, Ian M. Banks, um, he has this lovely thing called the out the outside context problem, um, and it's a, it's basically a, a a very good description of how very small levels of technological difference make wars incredibly one-sided or encounters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the the classic example of you talking about before about the americans pulling up um with their with their fleet into tokyo harbor and their cannons and facing off against a, a, a force which technologically was only you know presumably at that point you know a hundred years maybe of, of 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 industrial development different but that difference was so vast that the you know, they might have had some some cannons or, or something, but it was nothing like the American fleet. Or, you know, in Europe, in the um, there was the Franco-Prussian War, I think, in the late eighteen nineties or something like that. Or it, it was it was one of the first wars which Germany and France um, fought, and because the Germans had a, a rifle which was just better, and just better in every way, longer, quicker firing, more accurate. It resulted in an absolute decimation of, of armies and, and that technology was again presumed perhaps only five years different and so you know if you're talking about the the second world war fleets I mean, the reason the carriers worked was because that gave you the opportunity to hit without risking your without risking your in, incredibly precious and resource intensive ships while by their nature the jutland fleets you've got to be in harm's way to be to be effective so this actually brought me brings me to like a different thing we had talked about um, before before we started the show was um which what's called um let me just check my notes here sequential versus cumulative strategies in naval warfare so a cumulative strategy is the battle of the atlantic in the second world war where it was the longest battle in the whole second world war right it's like the, it ran for the whole war, basically. Yeah. And 
over time, slowly and deliberately, the U-boat fleet was eventually degraded to the point where it couldn't do its job anymore. Like a little victory here, a little an aircraft found a submarine here, uh, damaging some dry docks here, um, so they couldn't repair their fleets, et cetera, et cetera. Slowly picking away and eating away and attriting the German U-boat fleet led to the victory of the Battle of the Atlantic. Right. And that's how Jutland-style, World War-style, uh, and Old Age of Sail-style fleets used to fight, was you just pulled up alongside the other guy and you shot them until they ran into people, people ammo or their wooden ship just couldn't really hold together properly anymore. Because mm-hmm. it's really hard to sink a wooden ship. That's it. So that's a cumulative strategy where you're just constantly sending salvo after salvo of lead across to degrade and destroy and get through their crack their armor eventually it's a very imperial style it's like imperial guard style world war one attrition warfare right um which is perfect for the setting right like it's exactly what it needs to be yeah um because it's wasteful and 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 you are treating your um your troops um or your ships as um as exchangeable counters Rather than yes, you know, kind of it, it, yeah, it plays into that that horrible maths of, of the Imperium, and that actually, when you think about it, in you know, in World War One, the Royal Navy's job was to have a fleet bigger than two other enemy fleets together, right? Like the UK was basically making itself go bankrupt trying to keep ahead of the other guys' naval fleets, because just in case they allied against us, like yeah, in Trafalgar, for example, right? Sure. And so we need to be bigger. And in order to win um, against uh, in that style of warfare, you bigger is very important, right? You want to have more. Yep. Um, where the Eldar played what we would call sequential uh, combat or salvo warfare, right? So, so all naval warfare, salvo warfare, where you're firing a bunch of salvos of your guns to try to, you know, uh, eliminate the enemy opponent. But... Carrier warfare in the Second World War sort of cheated and changed the changed the dynamics because an aircraft can deliver a squadron of aircraft can deliver the same salvo as a whole bunch of battleships in way less time at far further range, right? And so that's what the Eldar did in Battlefleet Gothic, whereas you can send because your bombers were better, you would send your bombers and they could deliver the equivalent of a you know a couple ship broadside against one ship and then cripple it and then get away. Because it was, they were like, you know, bombers were considered ordnance or whatever the, the rule was, right? And um, and so, you know, when you look at uh, how modern naval warfare works, it's sequential. We do this, we do this, and then we win, right? It's like you're not trading pieces; you're setting up to win, right? And so, whoever gets, you know, the biggest, biggest, most dangerous salvo first, and you know, modern day we have missiles and things like that, which have changed salvo warfare as well. It's essentially, you're flying a thousand pound bombs, right? Um, so that's one of the reasons why, you know, for example, you know, it's kind of interesting how Battlefleet Gothic in, initially in the tournament scene mirrored real history because when the Eldar showed up with uh, aircraft, uh, the other fleets that didn't have aircraft the same way couldn't couldn't compete as easily. Right. Right. Which is because what is an aircraft carrier? What's the difference between an aircraft carrier and a battleship? Well, a lot of people would argue an aircraft carrier and a battleship do the same thing, but an aircraft carrier does the exact same thing a battleship does, but better. Delivers salvos to the enemy at further range with higher intensity than what a battleship does. 
you don't have to see them, right? You can just send your planes out of field view. It, it projects power better than a battleship does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and interestingly, it's like the also the the Eldar fleet is not doesn't have the same tasks. So I'm shifting now from in-game to the narrative element. So that the Eldar, we don't know about their trading. And there's a lot less detail. But we presume that there are contacts in between. But they use the webway gates. And so their yes. fleets, especially the craft world fleets, are much more about either going and raiding somewhere and protecting like a, a, an Eldar army, or they're defending the craft worlds, so they are like a coastal defense style fleet. Uh, would you say that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. Eldar cheat because that's what Eldar do, <laughs> right? Yeah. So they don't follow the we gotta we we have to um, sail through the warp to get from place to place. So the Imperium, I'm going to defend my planet. I'm going to surrounded by a ring of steel of naval ships and system monitors and we're gonna have space marines and they're gonna you know be sailing ready to defend against this well that works great against chaos against orcs for the most part which have a unique mechanics but essentially they're the same as imperial fleets for more or less right yeah. they have ships that fly in they do battering ram they do ramming speed and stuff so maybe that you know that's more of a it's an orky thing but that's a rules affectation as opposed to you know anything majorly different yeah um, so the orcs travel through warp the same as everybody else. Uh, the Tyranids travel through the, not through the warp, but through real space, right? So same thing. You can put a big ring of steel around your planet and you can shoot the Tyranids as they come. And hopefully you have enough guys there to, to knock them out. Well, the elder don't follow any of these rules. The elder just show up on your planet, do what they want to do and disappear because they essentially teleport to your planet they just show up on the ground they bypass your entire navy uh and all the resources you put in your navy and show up yeah and so the only place the eldar can't teleport from is their craft worlds so their navy units are designed um even in game uh to protect the craft world so like they're they have the naval craft world escorts that the craft world has. There's actually some escorts specific. Their their job is specifically to go in the atmosphere of the craft world and shoot things that are trying to. They're going to hit the craft world. Oh, okay. So, are there scenarios where you're actually kind of you know trying to board a craft world or defend a craft world? Yeah, or even just asteroids, or because craft worlds don't have a traditional atmosphere, right? Like a planet would burn it up, right? Yeah. So there's actually like ships the entire design is to just they have point defense and small little lasers and or whatever it is and they just fly around and sort of pick off things that are going to get in the craft world which is great when you you know do the re the invasion of eandit again with the tyranids and you've got like spore drop pods you're trying to stop and everything right and so so that's the way the craft world is organized the corsairs do their own thing they're out there raiding so you want to hit fast and get out um but yeah that craft world's cheap and the necrons kind of cheat too because are similar where they either already were there and you didn't know about it yes or they broke into the webway and that's how they travel or they have some sort of, i can't remember what it was it's like probably like some seventh dimension drive that lets them travel like ridiculously fast speeds in normal space or something yeah they de they definitely cheat i mean they're, they're they are massively more maneuverable than imperial vessels for sure yeah i don't i don't i don't think i've ever played Battlefleet Gothic against Necron Fleet. I read their rules, but you know, reading the rules and 
playing the game or, you know, sort of like what you said with the amount of space between the moon and the earth and the volume. You have to sort of sit down and do it before you really fully understand the, yeah. you know, the concept. So. Um, and so likewise from the craft worlds, obviously defending, is, is the Drukaria in some ways an even more extreme version of that, aren't they? And that they... Yeah. They are raiders. I mean, they they bypass your your navy. They come in and they are they they, they hooligan their way onto the planet and and steal as many people as they as they can, um, and so they're they they don't really. It's not that they can't fight a naval engagement, but they don't need to. There's no there's that you know their own city is yeah. in the webway. So there's they they must essentially have no real navy i mean it's much more equivalent to like a um an air force like a kind of a, a well i mean i guess maybe the best historical example would be like the corsair fleets of the mediterranean um after the american uh american war of uh, uh, independence right so like that's actually how the U.S. Marine Corps got got to be famous was because they went and they uh, fought a bunch of battles against the the Corsair fleets in, in the Mediterranean, and it's and so you have like a city state that sort of sponsors piracy essentially. But uh, like that's what basic Camorra is. It's like a city state. It's a pirate city state in the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on your pronunciation, or like the North Africa that profits from piracy and sponsors piracy right the difference is from the real world example is that uh you the royal navy is not going to just show up and shut down your 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 situation if they don't like it because they can't get there so that's basically what they are and that's and that's um that actually goes to a different like so it actually goes to naval theory so naval theory um, talks about, so Alfred Mann, um, was a admiral in the U S Navy when the U S was very young and he examined sort of how the UK and other, uh, powers applied sea power. And he wrote a book called the influence of sea power on history. And it became like, sort of like the Newtonian apple falling from the tree moment for naval strategy, modern naval strategy. Right. And so he talked about, um, basically the fleet in being and control of the sea, right? So just the fact that you have a large fleet can actually stop an enemy from doing certain things, right? And so all through naval history, excuse me, um, you were, they were trying to do, um, you know, find this decisive battle to destroy the enemy's fleet. And then if you destroy the Trafalgar moment, right, where you destroy the enemy's fleet and now there's no more threat and we can do whatever we want. We can take ships, we can invade Spain, we can support those troops far away from home, we can project power wherever we need to be. Well, so that sort of works for the large superpowers of the day who are going to slug it out, right? But what about those smaller groups, you know, the Eldar, the Dark Eldar, things like that? Um, so they have to do it something different, which is... Um, we would, what a new guy called came along, Sir Julian Corbett talked about it. Whereas you can have, uh, you know, control of the sea, but control of the sea in one area means that you don't have control of the sea in another area. So it's by definition ephemeral. 
it's not it's not something yes. you can sustain without a base yeah. of some kind exactly so um this is why the royal navy had like all these squadrons all over the world it was because in order to protect all of their interests they had to have local control over certain areas right but that maybe meant that they ignored the caribbean and the pirates could go crazy there right because they couldn't get you know maybe at home when they're looking at france they're fine but over across the atlantic where they were weaker and so smaller powers in this case dark eldar eldar um do what they call war of the chase uh guard the core and that's what sir julian corbett called it and you focus on the lines of communication you find where the enemy doesn't have a fleet and you go there and you damage their lines of communication you stop them from getting ammunition from you from the ammunition planet you know uh the vracs as it may be right you know uh, so like vracs was had all the ammo and then when it rebelled you know chaos was like great this is good we're gonna help them stay rebelling because it's good it's gonna make make everything better for us um as opposed to the war of squadrons um, which is like the line of battle, the the big fleets meeting to try to do the decisive battle, right? And then get control. But you can do a lot of work with these small little vessels doing these little raids, these submarine attacks or torpedo boat attacks. Um, or in the case of 40K, you know, Eldar, Dark Eldar, showing up where you're not expected, doing what you got to do, and then leaving before the Imperial Navy shows up to clean up the prob problem. So, yeah. It's essentially, you know, raiding in an in enable sense right so i mean there's a lot more like in-depth whatever uh theory regarding julian corbett he had this he uh i think he liked the sound of his own voice sort of thing when he was writing but <laughs> when he reads sure. some of his working but yeah, yeah that's what his theory said okay and so um we did mention um orcs and tyranids before um so yes. should we start off with um with orcs then now obviously orcs are sometimes they're space hulks sometimes they they've you know they they they're running a um a, a, a war and and are kind of like a bunch of ships all descending on a planet so system to invade it um how would you characterize them as a as a navy or as so, or how how would you try and combat that navy well i don't know see orcs always were sort of written as a uh elemental force i was fine right it feels like when the orcs show up you can either be the tree that stands and breaks or you can bend with the wind sort of thing you know and um like the way they play in the game and the way they're described in the uh in the writings right is they sort of are a bashing they show up they bash they have a bazillion guns and they just sort of overwhelm you with this sort of volume and there's no uh, classic broadside lineup. It just sort of seems like a brawl. It's sort of, they're like a brawling fleet, I guess maybe is the best example, which is, you know, makes sense. They're orcs. That's what orcs do, right? And um, orc pirates are sort of in the weird spot because piracy by its very nature means that you're in it for some sort of financial gain or maybe independence from, your, from um, wherever you came from. But I don't know, like, you know, whenever you sort of read the stuff about the orcs, it just sort of seems like, well, maybe we'll get some financial gain from this, but let's just have a good scrap anyways, you know? And so, so that's the way it sort of orc fleet feels. 
But then you get someone like Gaskell Thrakel who then directs that energy and then lands rocks on your planet and uh, saves Octarius from being overrun by the Tyranids just because, you know, he needs more Waff to go back to Armageddon or whatever he's going to do. So, so um, it's, it's really hard to characterize orcs because um, there's sort of no good examples I, I can pull from, from history to sort of pigeonhole them. But I do like the idea of thinking of them as sort of like, they just are, they're an elemental thing that exists in the universe and you just have to learn how to deal with them. Yes. And if orcs are coming, get ready for the hurricane. Yeah, okay. Right? Prepare for the hurricane. Sure. And that so. seems like the... But they still move They still move relatively quickly via the uh, via the webway. Um, they still are capable of that kind of... So orcs don't... I don't think orcs use the webway. The orcs think... Uh, uh, sorry, not the webway, the void. Um, the warp. The yeah, warp, the warp, yeah. yeah. And that, that, so, so, I mean, they often come in on space hulks um, in systems and things like that, so... Yeah, and they also have the teleportas, which every time you read a new book, it does something different, which is also kind of orky. Yes. You know? Well, and, with um, the, and orcs never get attacked by demons because they don't believe they get should be attacked by demons. Or well, and also they, they quite they, enjoy it. Um, yeah, exactly. They, they quite, they, like, traveling through the warp's the best. It's a scrap every day. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, then, and then, so Tyranids are a step slower, but they are that sort of, I mean... As as a as a navy fleet, then they are a completely different. Thing. Yeah, and it's, it's and that's the more so that the waves of, um, the waves and waves and waves where you can, you know, you can make them pay a hundred times the price that you pay and still f lose that battle of attrition. So Tyranids are really interesting, and I love the way they wrote them in Battlefleet Gothic, and also pulled from previous. Because you, you always had knew the Tyranids came from space and there's just this huge swarm of locusts, essentially, showing up to eat your planet. And then, you know, throughout the years, they eventually developed the narwhal system. Like, narwhals are, are Tyranid organisms which can detect gravitational, if I remember correctly, gravitational, uh, the gravity of planets very far away. Okay. And then they focus on those planets and they sort of, allow the Tyranid fleet to sort of follow in their wake at faster than light travel. Oh, okay. And when they're going to a system, the, they're using gravity to do this. So they're all hooked into the gravity of the planet. And so they make like basically a gravity tunnel and they pull the rest of the Tyranid fleet with them, which is how they can move faster than, faster than light. Um, which is also why when the Tyranids are coming, your planet has tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes start erupting and the planet starts rebelling against the people who live there and very conveniently for the Tyranids, when they show up, the planet's already dealing with like multiple natural disasters caused by their gravity approach to the system. And so, and so then the Tyranids just show up and then it's sort of kind of like, um, uh, I mean, the game terms, it's a little different where they're trying to get, to eat you they're trying to bite you like they have their plasma guns and whatever but at the end of the day the tyranid fleet's trying to consume you and um so they have ships that get up very close to you and try to sort of overwhelm you or pin you in place and hold you down and then beat you up and um they also have the really cool concept of spores which are the equivalent of air defense uh, and shields so they do so if your aircraft is flying towards a tyranid ship you're going to run into a spore right 
But also if someone's shooting at you, uh, the spores are going to get in the way of whatever's shooting. So it's sort of like this intro. I thought that was an excellent bit of science fiction writing that I absolutely loved. That's where you're saying your drones, right? Your fleet of drones is defending the mothership oh. by just getting in the way. So actually there's bringing it up towards more modern warfare. That's sort of, that is a sort of analogy is that they have a bunch of low cost autonomous, semi-autonomous, but slaved kind of units, which are yeah by themselves, not very, not very powerful, but as a cumulative whole can can still overwhelm you so it's kind of yeah yeah so oh, it's, yeah, it's drone really warfare and 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 that fleets of that is is perhaps a, a decent if not perfect analogy then well the term drone does come from the insect world so you know so it's not a huge stretch to see how that might be a, a connection right oh, sure that's a really um, interesting thing though because i've never thought of them in that in that way before as a fleet that's fascinating yeah. okay cool um and so and the, there's another couple uh, i mean i think obviously we don't really need to deal with um harlequins because then they're just more of the same um mm -hmm. more of that eldar eldar cheating nonsense that they do um <laughs> and but we've got the tau and the space marines now tau are interesting because they are a very you know they do not use the, the the warp and therefore you'd think that that would that's the equivalent of being hamstrung in the 40k mm -hmm. universe that i mean there has they have to find a narrative reason why the um why the towel why that doesn't absolutely cripple the towel so they've they've managed to sort of do this very small and limited expansion with spheres um, using sublight or, or very very slow equivalent to void travel um ships mm -hmm. but and if eldar can you know just cheat by zooming into ev almost everywhere with the webway then the void if you don't have access to it is a similar cheat code so you would assume that basically the imperium in using it could dispatch a, a, a fleet squadron and just bypass the tower outer defenses and turn up launch enough torpedoes to nuke any given planet and they'd be able to deal with the tower in incredibly short order uh again that's obviously not going to happen but do you know anything about how the tau navy operates or how their defenses work or how they avoid being completely annihilated so the answer to that was something that you brought up earlier was you can't just warp to any system. You have to follow the warp lanes, right? And because space is huge and the Tau have spheres, so the Tau makes self-reliant communities, right? They don't specialize like the Imperium. So you go ahead and blockade a Tau planet, they're going to be just fine, right? They've got the perfect mix of Earth cast, air cast. You know how the Tau are. Right, like they've got everything planned. I say this like you've met a Tau, you know, right? <laughs> they've got the Tau. You know, my neighbor's a Tau, and he's got everything planned out all the time. Everything's perfectly balanced. He always takes his garbage out exactly on time. You know, um, perfect neighbor. But like the Tau don't follow the, they don't cheat, but they don't follow the same thought patterns or the same rules the Imperium does. They don't need to have all their planets connected. They have the spheres connected, and the spheres are close enough that sublight travel is going to get them between each other fast enough. And the 
Imperium is in a weird way stuck following this big ponderous, these big ponderous warp routes into and out of Tau space. That's why I think the Damocles Crusade was such a big deal, because that's like one of the ways into Tau space. So the Damocles Gulf sort of like makes a big nasty place for the ships to go across, right? So you it's hard to get ships through the Damocles Gulf, which is why there's strategic routes likely in that area. And then therefore, when the fleet shows up, that Tau Sept has got everything it needs to defend itself, right? And so, um, so, but th- I mean, but that's where you said like that inhibits the Tau. So they need to get out and make these spheres and they need to do it in a certain amount of time before the bad guys show up because the spheres are supposed to be self-sufficient. And then you can do those sort of longer range trading range arrangements between them where it takes multiple years or whatever. So that's how the Tau survive. And then, of course, the Tau, all of their guns are like way better than anybody else's guns. They have, you know, this, the spaceship-sized rail guns and their Titan equivalents are actually aircraft and like the Mantis are Titan equivalents. They're, you know, they're spacecraft slash aircraft. I'd also and so, argue, I think, that they they survive by not being a sufficient threat. Um, uh, yeah. Like, that, they are a very small... Their rate of expansion is slow. They're, they might be a threat to individual planets or systems or areas of the Imperium. But, you know, when you've got Tyranid, entire Tyranid high fleets descending and stripping entire sectors clean the tower just don't figure as a priority yeah like the tower are rounding error i guess for the imperium yeah i mean and so in there's... real world terms i guess if you're the british empire in the 1800s you're okay with there being sort of pirate fleets with their own areas of, of or, or not pirate fleets but bits of like there are areas of the world which have navies which have local control because you can bypass them you can work around them mm-hmm. because they're not a big enough a big enough threat for you to go okay we're sending a task force yeah they're way out in the middle of the corner of the galaxy their their slow expansion rate is probably uh artificially makes them more survivable because they're not showing up on the uh the numbers of the high fleets of terrors when they get their statistical analysis like oh it's been 200 years and now the tau just expanded another planet you know sort of thing um uh like that that doesn't even register right so their slow and steady wins the race concept is not showing up on anyone's radar and um so unless they convince some planets to rebel who are critical to some sort of local infrastructure for feeding food or whatever to a planet um you know water cast shenanigans uh then uh then they're not going to show up and even if they do show up there may be for that local area guy but oh also that's also the same region where the ultramarines are it's the same region where this the tyranids are and the ultramarines were just dealing with like mortarian invading the uh, you know their area like they got old grudges the tower aren't part of that right so you're absolutely right i totally agree with that it's like it's like the rise of, I mean, this sounds terrible, uh, um, the analogy, but like the rise of um, of Japan, right? They didn't, weren't noticed until they were noticeable, right? Japan, the battle of Japan fighting against um, Russia, a naval battle, 
wiped out the entire Russian Pacific fleet and then Baltic fleet after they sailed around. And that's actually led to the development of the dreadnought because the British looked at what the Japanese did and said, oh, you didn't lose any, use any of these small guns? We're only going to put big guns on our ships from now. The Japanese showed the UK the way to go. And so, um, you know, it was way out in the corner and the UK didn't have to worry about them. They, were, they had other problems closer to home. They had France and Germany. Germany's chaos, you know, in this analogy, right? So, ah, Japan can do what it wants. It's out in the middle of nowhere, right? Which I wonder, once again, if that's a design thought because of the whole, like, mecha uh, anime sort of draw from uh, for the Tao design philosophy, right? If They sort of, when they sort of thought that through, they went, you know, are we going to develop these guys an extant or, uh, or whatever development? Yeah, I mean the obviously the the thing with them and the warp is specifically because the Tau aren't psychic, um, mm. and obviously during the design process, that 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 would have come up and that would have been something which they had to work on and work around. Um, I would love yeah. It's just one of those things where I wish I could have seen the iterative process and the first drafts of what yeah. Tau were, because that would have been a fascinating exercising creation you're just taking these are the base assumptions of our of our world universe is that the warp provides our major factions a way of getting around or the webway but but any which way you have ways of moving swiftly and this new race has none of those abilities how do you yeah this this is like a design mm. exercise i would imagine as a sort of as a military planner from time to time you hear um yeah okay this is the u.s army has a zombie survival you know kind of plan and you go well they don't what they have is they have a tactical a set of tactical kind of um parameters mapped out and they're, and they're challenging their planners by putting you know sets of of um you know by by mimicking those things um, but it's not like it's not like they're actively planning. It's just that in war games or in like colleges, you you want to test people's resource resourcefulness and ability to kind of adapt on the fly. Yeah, you know, there's definitely something to be said about um, about planning for weird scenarios. Um, there's a joke uh, with military planning. So we they call they're called co courses of action when you do planning and you want to present a bunch of options to the command staff. And there's always a joke where like, worst case scenario, best case scenario, most likely scenario, and then the fourth throwaway one is aliens invade. <laughs> you know, right? Like, it's a little bit of a joke, like, always have an aliens invade one so that there's something that the commander can say no to and feel like he did his job, you know? Sure. <laughs> so something ridiculous. Yes. And you can do those fun planning exercises. And, you know, why not? Right. If they're fun, but you're practicing the skill sets, you know, you should always make you should always make your training fun. This is for everything in life. Your learning should always be fun. And when you can. Yeah. So. So as a as a yeah. Navy, as somebody who's sort of involved in the Navy, is is like, do you do you have the sort of almost like tabletop wargaming kind of exercises and scenarios? Yes. Yeah. All the time. Um, now, not like traditional tabletop we actually call it a tabletop where you sit down with whatever the scenario is and then you talk your way through the scenario it's more of a role play so on the yeah so on the ship for example i'm part of the damage control team so if the ship were to take battle damage or just damage how do we respond to that 
So sometimes you sit down and you go, okay, this space is on fire. How do we fight that fire? And you put people in the positions with the 10 communication devices and you just sit around the table and you talk about how you would deal with that situation, right? And then you do, the next thing you do is what you call a fast cruise. We call a fast cruise where you do the exercise while the ship's not sailing anywhere, where you just sit in harbor and pretend there's a fire in the space, right? And then act, respond that way. And then to make sure that all your processes are correct. And then you go to see and you practice it. And then you actually get evaluated on like your responses. Yeah. So these tabletop exercises, um, sometimes they involve like little, little, you know, chess pieces on a map, on a, a diagram of the ship to move people around saying, well, I would put this person here and they would do this. And I would put this person here and they would do this. You know, you can do that too. Yeah. I've done that. Definitely. Sure. So. Okay, so um, on from the Tau to the um, the last one I had were Space Marines. Now, Space Marines break a lot of the rules, not in the way they travel, but in the way that they don't have the predetermined role that um, the Imperial Navy does. They don't care about trade. They don't care about defending planets a lot of the time. They are a sort of a that they they don't depend on anyone else to move them they have that they, they are an integrated military force with their own transport who go more or less where they want um and that's interesting in its in its own regard because in sort of historical terms that puts them a little bit like the like the knights templar or the knights hospitaller who 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 were um, you know, owned islands in the in the Mediterranean. Um, I can't. I think it was the hospitalers who were who who owned Malta, and who would who had their own fleets and would go off and do their own thing. They were sort of given a given a sort of a general kind of role of keep this area free of pirates, but but they weren't under direct control of anyone else. Um, and that's that's a diff. There's no sort of direct equivalent of them today is there not that i can think of i mean like space marines are what the knights templar without the bank you know right like <laughs> so um so like how do you how do you classify them well you know they fight the same similar way that the imperial navy fights a little bit more uh armor a little bit more firepower a little bit more professionalism right because um, they can do better boarding actions and their their ships are tougher. Because you know it's space marines; everything they have has to be tougher and better. Um, and so, uh, so that's the way they are. But how they uh, operate, and then even space marine chapters are different. Because you have like, for example, um, the Black Templars are just a whole bunch of different fleets just sailing around doing their thing, whatever they need to do. They believe the emperor wants them to do, and then you've got. Um, you know, like the ultramarines, which have like a system and probably their own imp imperial navy ships that work for their systems and a more traditional nation state sort of concept, right? And so, um, yeah, so I just sort of, I, in my mind, I've pigeonholed um, uh, space marines as like an assault fleet. So when it gets really hot, you need to punch a hole in the enemy line, the space marines show up, they get through the enemy line, and they get the guys onto the planet to do the job. So they do, they would be like, literally like marines, 
uh, with their own Navy detachments. So they get on shore, they do opposed opposed landings, amphibious landings onto an enemy, enemy planet and get the job they need to be done. Also kind of special forces E2 where, you know, you just show up, do your special forces job and then you leave. Yes. Yeah, they right? don't have... And then uh, what the regular yeah, army... Yeah. Their job is to is to fight. It's not to do any, any of the stuff around the rest of the war. So they don't have... Yeah, no, their job is to... They're not logistics. Kidnap the high value asset and get them off the planet. Yeah. Right. And, like. and, then, the, and then the Imperial <laughs> Guard can clear up the mess and they they can reestablish control and and you know communications and all that kind of stuff. Yep. So yeah, they have a very a very limited remit. Um and within the sort of the fighting of forces in the Imperium, it's it's always unclear just how much free reign they have. And of course the answer is as much as the story needs them to. Um, yes, um, because yeah, the imperial the the inquisitors can ask them, or you know, kind of forces they have ties to can request, but you never know exactly how how much those kind of webs of obligations and treaties go. Um, but that's what makes that what make that's what makes the narrative fun and 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 easy, and and you can create your own narrative within that. I wouldn't want it to be kind of too tied in. Um, to anything else um so are there other types of um of fleets we haven't dealt with yet i think that covers all of the xenos um, yeah i mean there's tr uh like the rogue trader fleets the mechanicus fleets and they all sort of have their own historical uh, connections um rogue trader are more like like the Sir Francis Drakes, yeah, royal, the Christopher royal Columbuses. Charter. So they're sort of sponsored yeah, by the government and given, but they essentially they're pirates, glorified pirates. Um, and yeah, and they go well. out, they discover new places, they loot and pillage what they think they need to make some money, and they come back and show Queen Elizabeth like how awesome yeah. they are. Right? Show, show um, her the potato. Is that is is that a thing I remember? Yeah. yeah. You know what I always remember. This is going to sound you're going to laugh, but. Black Adder, Sir Francis Drake, sticks in my head so much because, Your Majesty, I brought you back this stick. And she's like, if you throw it, it comes right back, you know. Like, <laughs> stuff like that. If I wanted to throw it away, why would I want it to come, come back, right? Um, you know, uh, so yeah, definitely sort of things like that. Like the Conquistadors is another excellent example, I think, of, uh, so to get away from always using UK examples, uh, of, of uh, the... Um, those fleets, right? Go out, find some hapless population, pillage what you need to make a whole bunch of money, and come back. You know, being the hero, right? I'm the rogue trader. I get to do whatever I want, right? So, it's another um, historical example, I guess you would say. Sure. Um, okay, then. I think we've covered everything on the um, on my notes. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or discuss? Um. So I kind of wanted to talk about, like, um, I know we talked about it before, but, like, how modern naval warfare differs from 40K. And the main sort of thing, modern naval warfare differs from 40K is, like, the same thing that 40K, the board games differ from 40K, is, is range and sensors, right? So, like, modern naval warfare, ideally, you never see the enemy, ever, right? Either they're under the water as a submarine or... Uh, or you're under the waters of submarine, or they're beyond the horizon as a radar contact. 
and you're lobbing ordnance at them with through missiles or aircraft, right? And so what that does is that changes the way the game works, um, you know, um, to detection, tracking, and uh, electronic warfare. So like the person who finds the other guy first is the person who gets the salvo off first, which means that you're probably the person who wins, right? If you get the first the first shot, kind of wins in a lot of ways. Whereas, you know, forty so feet is really advantage. And, actually, is uh, in forty yeah, K first is, turn is, advantage. Yeah, is is a real thing. <laughs> Perfect example of the alpha strike. Yeah, the alpha strike <laughs> yeah. army. Um, or you set up to make them mess up their alpha strike and you get the beta strike. You know, that's literally, that's that's modern naval warfare, right? You either trick them into striking at something that's not useful or not as valuable as they think it is, mm-hmm. and then they've wasted all of their missiles, and then you beta strike them, or you get a major alpha strike and wipe them out. So, um, but the difference, what I'm saying is, is not in, in 40K, I guess, terms, um, or in Battlefield Gothic terms, is you always know where everybody is. Yes. Right? And so that's the big difference between modern naval warfare, is you don't know where everybody is. And finding them um, is perhaps the most important thing. So when, you know, you have people talking about, oh, this warship's better than that warship. I'm a combat systems engineer. I don't look at the ammunition that they're carrying or the weapon systems they're carrying first. I look at their sensors first. Right? Like, how good is that radar? How good is their electronic warfare sensor? How good is that sonar? Can they find the enemy? Can they track them? And then, okay, what do we do with that information? Right? That's a different discussion. But getting that information is important. There is no fog of war in 40k games. And there's no failure of communications either. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And that's certainly, again, reading about historical any historical battles it's like the miracle seems to be whenever an an army beyond the the era before radio is a- able to coordinate its movements at all let alone mm-hmm. um I mean, it's just when when i was sort of you know, reading about um you know um, battles in the civil war in the the english civil war where you know kind of the rivalries between the cavalry commanders meant that they would they would go off and, and just disappear for days on end, um, trying to, to outdo each other in, in things. And, and the actual you know, the actual supply train and infantry going along, just going, I don't know where my army is. I don't know where the opposition army is. Uh, I have, if I'm if I'm if I'm unlucky, then we literally run into a column of enemy troops and we have to start fighting within the next hour. And oh, you know, 40k and and. Um, sort of all the associated games where you're able to go and I will play this stratagem and I will do use this command ability and it's always <laughs> going to function uh, correctly. Yes. Uh, which is more, I mean, it is more satisfying from a game point of view. I think I'd find it very annoying if I if I issued orders and I had to... Oh, oh no, actually, because in, um, in Battlefield Gothic, you do have to roll for orders, don't you? And, yes, and, you do have to roll for orders. And so you order, you, you, you issue them on your capital ships first because they're most likely yes. to pass but if you fail then you can't issue orders after that and that can really really mess up your day um yes actually so there is there are some games where that's a mechanic there's there is a little bit of yeah there's some communication problems although i think when i played it i did find that pretty frustrating so um yes 
Yeah. And that's, yeah. Are they feel good rules or are they, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's the feel bad rule um, thing that Games Workshop's moved away from, I think, uh, over the years. I, the classic one was always, uh, I played Dark Elves in Fantasy Battle. It was the stupidity rule on my heavy cavalry. Oh, yes. And roll Where for they stupidity. Could, they would just do nothing for a turn. They just kind of just bumble forward. And if you were really close to the enemy, they would charge them, but generally no. You're like, really? I spent how many points on these things? And I spent all this time painting them, look super cool. And then they just went stupid in my first game. Like, ah, feel bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and it wasn't even funny. Like, trolls go dumb, right? You yeah. know, trolls go dumb. You expect that to happen. But, uh, elite you know, heavy, elite, elite elven heavy. Elder. It's an odd yeah, one. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Because they're, they're on dumb lizards or whatever, right? So, oh, they were. Um, but um, Yeah, they're on cold, cold, cold one ones, nights. Right? Cold one nights. Yeah. yeah, cold one nights. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I always was I was always irritating. Like, can't they just rampage or something? Like, they just get really hungry and run at you or something. Like, something semi useful. But no, <laughs> yes. <just> dumb. Um, <laughs> they didn't do anything. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. So you were talking about technology earlier. That's actually one of the, you know, those little things of technology, right? Like at Trafalgar, the British had better flag signals, a better way of transmitting fl- information through flags, right? And that gave them an edge. Right, like a small edge where they could maneuver better, and they practiced it all the time. Right, so you know, uh, England expects every man to do his duty or whatever. Signal was like a lot easier to send than the French sending the same signal to the French ships. Right, right, because they like had an alphabetized sort of thing, whereas a combination of flags made a code word. You could, you know, yeah, instead of putting up the whole letter. Sort of thing. So, uh, definitely. Definitely technology has a huge impact. Um, and that's especially even more so in modern navies. Because if I have a slightly better sensor and I can detect you 5% sooner than you can detect me, 5% range sooner than I have, a, that's a large advantage. Because, look, we just talked about miles and time, right? 5% of it's an extra 5 kilometers on 100 kilometers. Yeah. I can. I, that's a lot of room to play with in naval warfare, right? Yeah. Five kilometers, that's like the range of uh, some some close-in weapon system guns, right? So you can uh, you can work with that, right? Yeah. So, so are um, there, um, what would be, if, you, if somebody was out there looking for a really good um, space combat game, do you have any recommendations? So I like Drop Fleet Commander. Um, there's... Uh, so Drop Fleet Commander, you were saying before we came on air, that, 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 yeah, that yeah, it yeah, sort of yeah. gets away from the idea of void warfare by saying that you really would never fight in the void. You fight over yes. planets because those are the important things. And so this is yeah, drop. fighting over a, an area and trying to land troops on specific objectives. Yeah, so Drop Fleet Commander, it's like a the 4x4 four four map, mat or whatever it is that you fight over, is essentially a planet. You get a, you can get planet maps or whatever yeah. for your board, and um, you're fighting over an area size of France, and you've got these major population centers or these objectives where you're trying to land troops to get these important objectives, and you can fight. And there's three levels: there's atmosphere, there's low orbit, and there's high orbit. And different ships can operate easily in some of them and less easily. Like you can't take your super dreadnought, you know, into atmosphere. Sure, it's not something like. Um, and uh, so the game is, and the game also deals with the sensor thing that like we were talking about. By you take your sensor range and your signature range, 
um, and you add them together. So if you have a signature of six inches and I have a sensor range of six inches, the weapons range where I can shoot you is 12 inches. Sure. So that's, a lot, your and so that's how they sort of do with the, you are, right? Yeah, basically how much radiation are you putting out? So if, if and if I start shooting all of my weapons, my signature actually increases because mm. I'm making a whole bunch of noise, basically. I'm infrared signature spikes or whatever. And if you're burning really high speed, your signature increases. So, or if you're silent running, you're just floating through space. So th this takes the idea that we generally know where the enemy ships are, but we can't get a tracking on them. Like every once in a while we'll get like a radar ping and they're sort of over here, or we hear like a whisper of their communications. So we know the general vicinity because it's space, it's gigantic. So in this bearing on this sort of altitude, they're over there somewhere. But if they're silent and running, then, then they're just a speck of dust. In, in, yeah, and you're like, okay, we know they're on our left flank somewhere, but we have no idea. And then all of a sudden, boom, they show up and they're really close to you, shooting at you, right? Um, and so that's it's a really interesting way they've done that. Um, whereas Battlefleet Gothic, you know, like this is the range of the gun, right? Um, and so that leads itself to a different sort of gameplay where you're looking for that alpha strike, but you're doing it in squadron levels. Because if I, if I alpha strike you with one, and because they have um, you go, I go uh, sort of turn system. So if I do this really cool thing with my squadron of destroyers, well, guess what? Those destroyers are now going to be lit up by everybody on the other side because I shot all my guns. And now my signature is 12 inches. And now everybody in the other fleet can see me, right? So it makes for a very different game. And, then, and you're also fighting over objectives. So you're trying to get your troops landed on the, on the planet, different spots. It's a very interesting game. There's another game, and I'm trying to remember. I played it years ago. Uh, oh, if you really want a really old school, uh, uh, classic uh, uh, variance hammer blog style hex warfare game, uh, I would uh, go to look at um, Starfleet, which is a beta universe Star Trek game. And you basically, so beta, so there's the Alpha Universe, which is uh, like the, the TV show, right? And then there's the Beta Universe, which is like the cartoons and, and some of the books. And it was before they made like the next generation. It was all based on the original series. But basically what you do is you've, you've got a hex board and you have your spaceship and your spaceship is like, I don't know if you ever played Battletech, but it's like your spaceship has like arcs on it. And there's like little grids. And then when you take damage, you just mark off so many grids on your shield as your shields get smaller. And you're managing the energy of your ship. So it's very much like you said, like a hero ship sort of thing where your ship versus their ship. And you're like putting energy into your shields or your weapons and you're trying to maneuver. And then the rules are ridiculously complicated, but it's a ton of fun if you can find a way to do it. You can find it virtually online. I think the rules are free now. And then there's another game uh, it was called, I think it's called the Saganami Simulator. And that um, is really interesting because it's based on the David Weber's Honor Harrington Honorverse series. So the Honorverse series is a space science fiction uh, of the Royal Navy in space against the French for the you know, Napoleonic era. And it's the Royal Manticore Navy and literally the enemy planet's called Haven and it's Nova Paris is like, the, you know, like he did it on purpose. He basically said, I want to do Horatio Hornblower in space. space. So he made Honor Harrington. 
And the board game is really crazy because it talks about rolling your ship in three dimensions. So like, suppose you take damage on one side of the ship or you have missiles on one side of the ship and you fired them, you want to roll your ship in three dimensions to the other side to shoot missiles at the other guy. And that's a really unique and interesting game. A lot of people say X-Wing, but I've actually never played X-Wing. It just looks like... Uh, I, originally, I played the original um, biplane version and uh, then they turned it into Star Star Wars and I was like, eh, it's not as cool as biplanes. Okay. <laughs> but maybe I'm biased. Yeah, um, in terms of um, computer games, um, the the one that springs to my mind is Homeworld. Um, I don't know if you played yes. those. those. Those I played the hell out of those. And a very, I mean, very good, interesting gameplay for something which is comparatively mm. old now. Um, very topical, because I literally, last week, downloaded Homeworld Remastered. They redid all the graphics. Oh, wow, okay. So Homeworld 1 and 2, you can play it again with, but for a new, 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 today's computer. Oh, so okay. that's pretty cool. And then also I got a game, it's called Nebulous Fleet Commander. It's a really new game, very, very new. But it's super modern space combat, where you have... You control all of your sensors and your weapons and you're doing electronic warfare and you're trying to jam enemy missiles and it's very granular like modern naval warfare. Okay. So that really appeals um, appeals to you. It's a busman's yeah, holiday. For I mean, you, though, it's, isn't it? It's, yeah, it <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes it's a holiday for me. But uh, <laughs> other times it's like, oh, that makes sense why they did that, because that's the you know the math behind it, or you did the you did the course or whatever. Okay. But, um, okay. Well, that has been really, really fun, Trevor. Thank you so much for lending us your expertise and educating us about all these different fascinating things. And as you, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much for agreeing to come on and for, uh, for to doing, doing a little bit of homework and helping me to understand these things better. No problem. I hope, uh, uh, you get better from your COVID. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I look forward to chatting again. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap it up now. So, um, again, thank you so much to Trevor for everything um, you said today. And if anyone has any ideas uh, for future episodes or comments on this, uh, then I can be contacted on 40curious which is on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, there's also a Gmail address, 40curious at gmail.com. Um, there's a Facebook page. Basically, if you put 40curious, so that's 40 capital K U R I O U S, um, then I'll come up and it would be lovely to hear from you. Um, again, Trevor is another person who I didn't know before we set up the podcast, and it's, it's, been delightful for someone to go hey you know what i've actually got like government training and expertise in this kind of stuff and i've studied it um and i'd like to come on and talk about it and so it's been brilliant um so yeah so until next time uh goodbye and we'll see you soon <laughs>